the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend producing, Clark Hilton engineering. Today we're looking forward to a conversation with Hadia Miramadi. She is a Christian Post columnist and a former Muslim who served in the U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan. We're going to talk about the consequences of the military withdrawal in Afghanistan, the benefit of the United States having been there, a bit of her personal story of conversion to Christianity and her time at the U.S. Embassy. She'll be joining us later this hour. Uh, we're also going to uh, bring you up to date on what the recommendations are in the states of Oregon and Washington with regard to wearing masks And uh, it doesn't matter if you're vaccinated or unvaccinated. Well, according to the Oregon Health Authority, uh, yesterday they said everyone should wear a mask when in a public indoor place uh, amid the COVID-19 surge that sent hospitalizations up 25 percent in one day and new cases in excess of 1000. Now, they didn't specify in what areas specifically, but the Oregon Health Authority's recommendations are statewide and they apply to vaccinated and unvaccinated Oregonians alike. Now, the announcement followed a recommendation by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for masks in areas with high case counts, which would include 25 of Oregon's 36 counties. Now, the governor lifted a statewide mask mandate back in June. That was the 30th, as cases were in steep decline at that time. Well, the state has since um, repeatedly said that it's not implementing mandates for masks or any other COVID-19 restrictions, leaving those decisions up to the counties, even as the highly contagious Delta variant has spread. And apparently that's the dominant variant in the state of Oregon at this time. Well, Multnomah County has now recommended masks in indoor uh, spaces. That was on Monday. Today's reported sharp rise in cases and hospitalizations in Oregon are sobering reminders that the pandemic is not over, especially for Oregonians who remain unvaccinated. That's a quote from Dr. Dean Seidlinger, the state epidemiologist and state health officer, in a statement. The governor echoed those comments in a tweet yesterday saying the Delta variant is spreading across the country. Uh, Take it from an expert like Dr. Seidlinger, vaccinated or unvaccinated. Let's uh, mask up to protect our friends, family members and neighbors from COVID-19. We can stop the spread the same way we have before together. Now, this uh, many are suggesting uh, certainly is a disincentive for those who are yet to be vaccinated. What is the value of having the vaccine if you have to mask up like everybody else? One of the uh, incentives for those who have been vaccinated is that you were free. Uh, first of all, you were safer, we were told, and you were free to remove that mask. Well, that's no longer the case. And some are questioning whether or not this is likely to impact or influence those who are yet to be vaccinated. Well, as I mentioned, the Delta variant has become dominant in Oregon, according to health officials. As the COVID cases doubled in the past week, Oregon health officials reported 
that the Delta variant has become the dominant variant in the state, and apparently it's uh, more contagious. The Oregon Health Authority has tracked nearly 3,000 cases involving variants of concern. The uh, health authority said sequenced cases of the Delta variant have increased from 30 to 50 percent in the most recent week, which is a tenfold increase over the past two weeks. Now, that sounds ominous. We're talking about 3000 cases when you talk about 30 to 50 percent. It needs to be put into perspective. We don't have time nor the ability to do that now, but. You might want to check that out with the Oregon Health Authority. Well, during a press conference on Thursday, State Health Officer Dr. Dean Seidlinger warned the spread of the Delta variant poses a risk for unvaccinated people primarily. The emergence of this highly contagious variant should be a red alert to those who remain unvaccinated. You are at higher risk now that you were uh, uh, more so now than you were earlier in the pandemic and you were putting the people around you at risk. Now, what's being suggested is It's possible for vaccinated people to carry the virus and become contagious for those who are unvaccinated. I'm hearing different stories on that line, but that's one of the reasons they're suggesting that vaccinated people wear masks when in public places. Well, last month, more than nine out of 10 people who tested positive for COVID-19 or were hospitalized or died from the the virus were unvaccinated. That means that at least one of those 10 was vaccinated. That's according to the Oregon Health Authority. Oregon is open, but the pandemic is not over, especially for people who remain unvaccinated. Patrick Allen, who is the director of the state health authority, said, well, in Oregon, more than 70 percent of adults have been fully or partially vaccinated. But in one third of Oregon's counties, many rural, less than 50 percent of the adult population is vaccinated, according to the health authority. In Umatilla County, for example, 43 percent of residents there are partially or fully vaccinated. The county's coronavirus test positivity rate is over 14.2 percent. Uh, In contrast to Washington County, where 75.1 percent of the residents are vaccinated and the virus test positivity rate there is 4.1 percent. In Washington, Governor Jay Inslee announced today that the state is recommending there that residents wear masks inside public spaces, regardless of your uh, vaccination status. In counties where COVID-19 transmission levels are considered high or substantial. Now, this is in accordance with the CDC's uh, recommended uh, use of uh, masks for fully vaccinated people. We should go back to wearing those masks indoors to help prevent the spread of the highly contagious Delta variant. Well, this new guidance is a recommendation and will not be enforced, Governor Inslee says, or part of any compliance requirement, according to Inslee. Well, he joined, uh, was joined rather in his press conference by Washington Secretary of Health, Dr. Umer Shah. Uh, this comes weeks after Washington fully reopened, dropped most pandemic restrictions. Well, the latest guidance on masks in indoor public places applies in part, uh, parts of the county with high or substantial case rates, which equals between 50 to 100 new cases per 100,000 people in the last week. That includes 60 percent of U.S. counties, according to officials, including some in western Washington. You can view the CDC map uh, on their website uh, online. Well, Governor Inslee addressed the epidemiological curve for the state of Washington, suggesting that Washington is seeing a fifth wave of the pandemic due to the Delta variant. We know the dominant variant today is the Delta variant. It is twice as infectious. It is more likely to cause serious illness, and it is easily Um, The most dangerous mutation to date of this virus, and we know it's trending upward, the governor there said. 
Meanwhile, Senator Graham is asking, um, since Americans are now uh, cause or call to replace the mask, what about those who are entering the country without being tested? And we know the numbers are relatively high. He's actually written asking for specific answers from the Homeland Security Secretary. We'll follow that story as it develops. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to a conversation with Hadia Miramadi. She is um, formerly worked with the U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan. She is an exclusive columnist for the Christian Post and former Muslim. We'll talk about What's happening in Afghanistan, her personal story of conversion, and her time in the U.S. Embassy. I want to mention that you are invited to join Jim Daly of Focus on the Family and Amy Ford from Embrace Grace each Friday night, now through the end of August, for a series of inspiring conversations to encourage you to live as a pro-life parent, friend, and everyday hero. Together, they're going to gather around a table each week with friends to discuss six unique topics surrounding life. Every episode will include uh, guests from all walks of life, including doctors, college students, disabled persons, and pro-life leaders. You can find out more at focusonthefamily.com slash life. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Senator Graham is demanding answers from Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. I write today to discuss my ongoing concerns about the humanitarian and public health crisis at the southern border. He wrote Mayorkas on the 26th of this month during one of the greatest public health emergencies in recent history and at a time when illegal crossings are nearly 1.2 million Uh, migrants this fiscal year alone. It's important to understand whether migrants are receiving appropriate COVID-19 testing and screening upon apprehension. Well, Graham told uh, the media on Tuesday, so what I'm asking the Homeland Security to do is to tell me and the American people of the millions of people you've apprehended, how many of them have been released into the United States? How many of them do you test? What is the positivity rate? What is the system in place to test people before they're released into the United States? Well, the senator said the Biden administration's COVID restrictions clearly do not apply to the southern border. We have travel bans to some of our best allies with a robust health care system. We have absolutely nothing in place regarding illegal immigrants coming into the most severe hotspots in the world with no health care. Doesn't make sense. Well, and what I'm trying to do, again, uh, Senator Graham points out, is to ask the Biden administration to have an accounting of how they deal with the millions uh, coming across, how many are tested, how many are released into the United States. They're basically telling me, well, to go somewhere you don't want to go. I've written to Dr. Fauci and I've asked him, what is your view on taking Title 42 COVID policy away from DHS and the Border Patrol? He said, that's not my area. Dr. Fauci, you're the medical advisor to the president on COVID. The border agents, um, uh, Border Patrol agents and their families are American heroes. I've been to the border several times. It's complete chaos. I don't know how they uh, go to work every day. They're American heroes. And my understanding is some 80 plus of them have tested positive for COVID. Uh, He went on to say, I can tell you this, the Biden administration doesn't have their back. It doesn't seem to matter that the border uh, communities are exposed to uh, 
illegal immigrants. What matters is the Biden administration is trying to restrict us as Americans and is just completely deaf, dumb and blind to the problem created by COVID through illegal immigration. Well, Senator Graham said if Mayorkas does not answer his letter, that's an affront to me as a senator. It's an affront to the border communities. It's an affront to the border patrol agents and their families who are on the front lines of this COVID mess. I'm not going to take a nonsense um, uh, as a response, uh, no response, rather, as a response. Uh, we're about to ratchet up the pressure on the administration to account for this policy at the border. Well, the text of the letter can be found online to Secretary Mayorkas, and we'll follow that story to see if, in fact, there is a response. In other news, the Capitol riot hearing kicked off uh, with police officers blaming Trump and the Republicans for the January 6th unrest. Four police officers who defended the U.S. Capitol from a mob that invaded on the 6th of January criticized the former president and Republicans in general who are loyal to him for allegedly inspiring and then downplaying the attack. They asked members of the House Select Committee investigating the events of that day to get to the bottom of Trump and the GOP's culpability. You guys are the only ones we've got to deal with uh, crimes that occur above us. Metropolitan Police Department to Officer Daniel Hodges said, I need you guys to address if anyone in power had a role in this, if anyone in power coordinated or aided, abetted or tried to downplay, tried to prevent the investigation of this terrorist attack. Well, that's a question that's already been asked before the commission was established. And while it was being established, they squarely put the blame on Donald Trump. So I'm not sure where to go from there on that particular answer. The officers made the comments before a panel with no hostile questioners. Republicans pulled all of their appointees to the committee after the House Speaker blocked two of them for being too closely aligned with Trump. Well, the fact that the only Republican on the committee, Representatives Adam Kinzinger, a Republican out of Illinois and uh, Liz Cheney from Wyoming, also a Republican, were selected by Pelosi, made for a hearing with little dissent or fireworks. But with graphic body camera video and emotional testimony, the hearing was still gripping and at times jarring television. Well, four police officers testified. Some of the highlights of that or takeaways from that testimony, the peaceful transfer of power didn't happen, they argued during the opening remarks. The uh, chairman, Bernie Thomas, said a peaceful transfer of power uh, of power has stood as a pillar of our democracy or constitutional republic in transitioning from one president to the next. While our institutions endured and while Joe Biden is the legitimately elected president of the United States, a peaceful transfer of power didn't happen this year. It did not happen. Let that sink in, Thomas said. A violent mob was pointed toward the Capitol and told uh, to win a trial by combat. Well, the peaceful transfer of, of power did happen, but with a violent attempt to disrupt uh, in the mix. One nation under God. Representative Liz Cheney, one of two Republicans on the nine member select committee, said the incident needed to be investigated as it is being investigated. She suggested she wanted to know what Trump was doing in the White House during the riot. We must know what happened here at the Capitol. We must also know what happened every minute of that day in the White House, every phone call, every conversation, every meeting leading up to during and after the attack. Without answer, she said this will remain a cancer on the public. Uh, McCarthy uh, criticized Cheney and Representative uh, Kinzinger, both of whom were appointed to the committee by the House Speaker as being Pelosi Republicans. Cheney defended her role on the committee. I have been a conservative Republican since 1984 when I first voted for President Ronald Reagan, she said. Our own citizens, well, Thompson asked Capitol Police Sergeant um, Aquilino Ganell, 
an Army veteran who served in Iraq, to compare what he experienced in war with his experience on the 6th of January. The officer responded that in Iraq, he primarily had to remove roadside bombs, but the attack on the Capitol was more constant. Well, that's a bit of an overstatement, but he went on to say, my time compared to Iraq, totally different. These are our own citizens, people who um, we swore an oath to protect, but yet they are attacking us with the same flag that they claim to represent. It was bad. The rioters didn't seem to care about his veteran status, he noted. The rioters called me a traitor, a disgrace, Gunnell said, and shouted that I, an Army veteran and police officer, should be executed. Hugs and kisses. Again, something to be noted. Cheney asked about Trump's uh, claim that on the 6th of January, the crowd was full of love, hugging and kisses. Officer Gunnell, who uh, uh, you think about uh, that and share with us the vivid memories of the cruelty of the assault that day. And then you hear former President Trump say, quotes, it was a loving crowd. Uh, There was a lot of love in the crowd. How does that make you feel? Well, the president was referring to the rally. Uh, The event at the Capitol was a separate event that included perhaps some of the people from the rally, but certainly not the vast majority. And recently released audio of the interview Trump gave to the Washington Post reporters. Uh, The president's loving reference doesn't appear to be about the rioters, but rather about the uh, the rally that preceded that event. Tens of thousands came to the pro-Trump rally on the eclipse near the White House, of whom only 800 broke into the Capitol. So I think that's an important distinction to make. Deny the events of that day. Well, Metropolitan Police Officer Michael Fanone. Uh, who was assaulted by rioters, condemned lawmakers who minimized the attacks. What makes the struggle harder and more painful is to know that so many of my fellow citizens, including so many of the people I put my life at risk to defend, are downplaying or outright denying what happened. Well, the D.C. officer said that he went to hell and back to protect members of Congress and that the indifference shown to my colleagues is disgraceful. My law enforcement career prepared me uh, to cope with some of the aspects of this experience being an officer you know your life is at risk whenever you walk out the door even if you don't expect otherwise law-abiding citizens to take up arms against you well that is precisely what the role of the uh, capitol police is law-abiding citizens uh, disrupting what's going on in the capitol that's not certainly unusual so it shouldn't be altogether surprising Uh, nor should it be surprising given what happened in the summer of love as the seattle mayor put it uh, where rioting took place all across the uh, the country in major cities and some not so major cities. Another notable um, fact, Capitol Police um, uh, PFC Harry Dunn testified about trying to hold the crowd back. I told him to just leave the Capitol, he said. He recalled someone shouted back, this is our house. President Trump invited us here. We're here to stop the steal. Joe Biden is not the president. Nobody voted for Joe Biden. Well, somebody did. In fact, a lot of somebody's did. Well, Dunn said that uh, prompted him to do something he wouldn't normally have done. I'm a law enforcement officer and I do my best to keep politics out of my job. But in this circumstance, I responded, well, I voted for Joe Biden. Does my vote not count? Am I nobody done recalled asking that prompted a, a torrent of racial epithets? Uh, He said one woman in a pink MAGA uh, shirt yelled, well, the N-word, and then others followed suit, shouting other words that are unflattering. I won't even reference. No audio or video evidence of that exchange described um, has surfaced to back up his claim, but there's no reason to to doubt it. Dunn said that he was the first time uh, that was the first time anyone ever called him the N-word while he was in the Capitol Police uniform and that he heard similar stories from other black officers defending the Capitol on that day. Some notable events of that event on the Capitol 
on the 9th of January. I hope questions about um, early reports prior to January 9th that the FBI and the speaker were made aware of the danger that was coming and how uh, they prepared for it or responded will also be asked as part of the ongoing uh, investigation. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk to a, an exclusive columnist for the uh, Christian Post and a U.S. embassy worker from Afghanistan. All of that when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as President Biden announced the total removal of all U.S. troops from Afghanistan, stating, I will not send another generation of Americans to war in Afghanistan, questions arose. Was our 13-year war there worth it? Well, this is one of the questions that my next guest, Hadia uh, Miramadi, asked. Um, she's an exclusive columnist for the Christian Post and she's seeking to answer that question. She served in the U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan in 2004 uh, and has um, was a former Muslim, now a follower of Jesus. Uh, she offers a unique perspective of recent events in Afghanistan. In a recent Christian Post column about her experiences, she describes the incredible benefits of the U.S. presence in Afghanistan in ways that you might not have uh, expected. Uh, we'll also speak about her um, personal experience in the embassy in Afghanistan, the benefits of the U.S. presence in the country, and how the Lord has shown himself in her life and in that country. I am so delighted to uh, to welcome our guest, Hadia Miramadi. Now, please correct me if I've mispronounced your name. No, that's perfect. Thank you, Georgine. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. <clears throat> Let's begin by talking a bit about your time in the uh, U.S. embassy in Afghanistan. Uh, sure, it was a it was a great time because it was a very hopeful time. We had great plans for what we hoped to accomplish there. Unfortunately, most of it did not come to fruition, but it was it was a noble effort. I, I'll definitely say that. You write about in the column I mentioned in the uh, uh, Christian Post uh, that some of your allies just so much incompetence uh, and deception and challenge in trying to accomplish what. We had agreed upon was a good uh, direction to take in that country. Can you describe some of the challenges in accomplishing what the United States had hoped to accomplish during that uh, that time there? Well, I, the the real hard part is a lot of these concepts and plans are drawn while we're sitting here in the United States, and we go overseas to operationalize them, and the realities of what's happening on the ground make those plans almost impossible. So, what I don't think we could have anticipated great enough was the logistical challenge and the security challenge to actually executing infrastructure development projects. So I recounted a story of my personal experience listening to AID officials talk about a school they had just built and the school actually was not built. It didn't exist. And embassy staff was up in arms about the fact that they were they were saying it existed, and the, the reality was nobody was able to go and visit the site because it was so dangerous for U.S. officials to be in that region that nobody had actually gone to see if it was built. I mean, that, that's such a shocking story to hear that those who are charged with carrying that task out weren't able to confirm that it was taking place. You had to rely on testimony from contractors and partners in Afghanistan, foreign allies, locals, 
and so on. And yes. it just did not work out. Is that a fair characterization of our presence there? Or were there some victories that you could point to that aren't military necessarily, but victories that did accomplish some significant things there? Oh, absolutely. There were victories. And though each of them may have been small in their totality, they were great. So I point to the victories we had in advancing the rights of women and girls. It was not only just opening schools and education for them, but we had developed networks of cooperation between them and women overseas, women in the United States, in Europe, in the Middle East and South Asia, where they were learning about microfinance and setting up businesses and becoming public speakers. I attended conferences all over the world that had Afghan women attendees, and it was just so uplifting to speak to them and the enthusiasm and the courage that they showed to do the things that they had set out to do. And so we as Americans are largely responsible for the bulk of that happening because it was such an important agenda item for us. And I think we could take great pride in knowing those advances, though they may be curtailed a little with the withdrawal, will live long past our um, our presence in Afghanistan. You make the point that there was a level of personal risk, that, but they were willing to do that in order to experience personal freedom. With concerns about the Taliban re-emerging in the area, what are your thoughts about what's likely to happen next? These are women of courage, and um, I think many of us are concerned about what will happen with them. Absolutely. And I think the their physical activities may be curtailed uh, while they're in Afghanistan. But like I said, the networks they developed in their ability to travel, they would do a lot of events outside of Afghanistan. And the Internet has created this remarkable ability for them to continue to learn, to develop their skills, to maintain those relationships. And I just hope and pray that they are able to continue them. They're there are strong people, there are proud mm-hmm. people, and I, and I believe that the women will continue uh, to advance the, the goals that they had set early on, despite the challenges. General Boykin, uh, you quote him from an, uh, an yes. uh, Emily Wood article, and he says, it may be these women that pose the most lethal threat to the Taliban's desire to return to Afghanistan to draconian policies of Islamic law. I mean, that's very encouraging. That's a lot for these women to carry. But as you pointed out, these women are tough and they've already uh, experienced a level of personal risk just to get to where they are. Absolutely. And and very similar to the women in Iran, the fastest growing church, underground church in the world is in Iran, and it's mostly led by women. So I'm, I'm happy to report that friends of mine on the ground said that they're having a similar phenomena in the underground church in Afghanistan as well, also being led by women. What are your thoughts about the withdrawal of U.S. troops and the morale of the people in Afghanistan who had Uh, relied upon the U.S. presence to hold back the tide of of, uh, opposition. What are your thoughts uh, moving forward is likely to be the case and the morale among the people? I mean, it's very very discouraging. Every time we withdraw without completing our mission, it's very discouraging to the people on the ground. And, And unfortunately, we've done this a number of times in other countries as well. And but we're stuck in this in this quandary of not being able to spend infinite amount of time, resources, and and keeping American soldiers overseas when we're not able to accomplish the mission we originally set out to. So I think it's difficult for all of us involved, but 
probably most so for the Afghan people. But again, they're a resilient people, and I pray with the message of the gospel going forward and their own internal fortitude, uh, they will find other opportunities. We're going to continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Hadia uh, Miramadi, and she is an exclusive columnist for Christian Post. But we need to take a quick break, so stay with us. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Hadia Miramadi. She is a columnist, an exclusive columnist for the Christian Post. In her column, she points out that with the withdrawal of U.S. troops uh, and some of the challenges that were faced, billions of dollars siphoned off by corrupt contractors, inept aid organizations, government bureaucracy, the effort to empower Afghan women with access to education, employment, and the media was thriving. That is a victory uh, for the U.S. presence there. You um, write that your professional and personal experience in Afghanistan uh, occurred when you were a practicing Muslim. You're now a follower of Jesus. Can you talk a little bit about your personal experience and what about your work there or your presence there uh, changed the course of your life? Uh, <laughs> so That's a big it's question. A, it's a big question. It's been such an amazing adventure, but I actually was a devout Muslim for 22 years. So when I was in Afghanistan, the version of Islam that I adhered to was a mystical sect that was actually quite popular in Afghanistan as well. And so it was this um, sect of Islam that was in a knockout dragout fight with the extremists because the extremists would try to um, dismantle the institution set up by the Sufi community in order to implant its extremist doctrine. So it was a natural fit for me to go there and try to help out the Afghan people and develop civil society infrastructure that mimicked other open Muslim societies. And, I mean, I just always had a heart for the Afghan people. My, my parents are originally from Iran and were very similar in culture. And fast forward now to my life um, as a Christian, I actually, I was at the FBI, I was at headquarters, and I was developing a national terrorism prevention program. And I decided to take my head cover off. And I got an onslaught of attacks and criticism that I would burn in hellfire for an eternity, hanging from my hair for taking off my head cover. And it just, the religion unraveled. It was literally like God was extracting me. And at the time, I, had, I hadn't met the real Christ. Uh, you know, we, there was a version of Jesus in, the, uh, in Islam, but it's quite different. And, but I just knew that I had to leave. And it wasn't until about six months later that I went through a personal trauma where I found this pastor online through YouTube. I actually had never stepped foot in a church for worship, nor did I have Christian friends. And this, this pastor just was speaking to my heart. And I watched and I watched. And after a couple of weeks, I ended up praying to God to reveal himself to me. And I heard the audible voice of Christ say, Hedia, it's me. So that's where that's where my transformation um, as a believer uh, began. You recognized his voice and answered <laughs> and followed. Oh, yes, <laughs> for sure. It was, it was unbelievably miraculous. And other Muslims uh, that have accepted Christ have had similar miraculous kind of encounters with the Lord. It, we, we make a joke that in order to bring a Muslim uh, to Christ, he has to do something miraculous. We're all pretty stubborn. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and uh, interestingly enough, I have found some dear Afghan friends that were also former Muslims. So it's just been really nice to 
share our experiences, our love for the Lord, and how we're so excited about how the gospel is going forward in Afghanistan. Now, that may be surprising to many of our listeners that the gospel is going forward in Afghanistan. Yeah. As you pointed out, and I, I know this is true in a, a number of Muslim countries, Jesus is revealing himself in ways that would be surprising to some of us here. We have access to you know virtually anything one would want for um, uh, growing in the faith. You write, my continued hope is in the seeds of faith in Christ that were planted along the way, referring to Afghanistan. Active missionary yes. work was and continues to be prohibited in Afghanistan, and even possessing a physical Bible is dangerous. The underground house church continues to grow. Uh, there are mula, mullahs who have come to Christ through supernatural means, who have hundreds of followers. Former Taliban members who have found forgiveness and new life in Christ are staring death in the face and sharing the the, the Lord with other Taliban fighters and leaders. Um, the most significant form of evangelism came through the Internet and social media. Can you talk a little bit about the gospel in Afghanistan? Because while it's incredibly encouraging and shouldn't be surprising, um, I think it is inspiring to hear stories of how the gospel is moving forward in areas that we might have dismissed as impossible. Absolutely. So I, I recall in my personal experience, now remember, I was a Muslim, but I still um, interacted with many of our NGO and international partners there. And there were very, there were many faithful Christians who, though they didn't have a specific evangelical mission, in all the other work that they were doing, they would speak about the gospel and about Jesus Christ. And I firmly believe at that time, many of those seeds were planted in that way. But as, as our relationship there developed, it was their contact with people outside of Afghanistan, other Christian leaders and women of faith that they interacted with in these development projects or these social media projects that helped foster um, that love for Christ and the understanding of Christ. And I believe that that continues until this day, largely because of the internet. They all, they are able to maintain their relationships through zoom and email and, you know, all the other mechanisms, but also through social media, like Facebook groups and other, and Instagram and other forms of communication. I know I've got tons of, uh, friends that have other, uh, contacts that are in Afghanistan that are learning about the gospel through these means. Mm. You made the the point in your uh, column that international the international presence in Afghanistan meant that there was powerful internet capabilities uh, that had to be established. When the United States and others withdraw, will that continue to be the case, or do you suspect that Taliban or others who oppose um, the Afghan people that they will um, suspend that c- uh, capacity, or is it even possible? I don't even think it's possible. Otherwise, Iran would have found a way to do it. I know that they can limit certain sites and they can limit certain interactions, but I think that they need it for their own development and to continue their own economic, you know, projects that they won't shut it down entirely. It's not going to be North Korea. So I just don't suspect that they're going to have much success in trying to limit it. They may try to limit the activities of the women on the ground, but I don't think they would be able to limit the power of the Internet in a, in a way that would stop uh, their activities. We talked about the underground church in Iran that is fast growing. What about Afghanistan? Is there an underground church and what does that look like there? Yes, absolutely. I, w- I was speaking to a friend of mine who was recounting a story of how they're doing it very similar to Iran in house churches. So they're basically 
meeting two or three people at a time in a person's personal home and talking about the gospel and it's spreading in that fashion to other people in, in their homes. And they're doing it in their native language, in Dari, and it's, it's a tremendous effort. And the Lord, will, you know, He moves in miraculous ways, and He will meet them where they are. It's just been, it's so beautiful to hear about. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that there are mullahs who have come to Christ through supernatural means. And we've heard about what's happening in uh, in Muslim countries where Jesus reveals himself in the absence of Christian witness. Uh, and they have hundreds of followers. How does that work? Is that is this also a function of the Internet and social media? Well, I think when it's the mullahs, it's, it's also by direct contact. So they have exposure, um, again, through personal contact, through other relationships, but also through the Internet, and they're able to, in person, spread it to their followers. So the home gatherings in Islam, in, in the tradition that's in Afghanistan, is very popular to meet in the homes. So that's, it's, less, um, it's less familiar here in the United States. But in Muslim countries, it is actually quite popular to meet and have religious ceremonies in the house. So uh, these mullahs are now using those opportunities to preach the gospel instead of Islam. Well, again, it's just so uh, thrilling to have a confirmation yes. that God is at work. I mean, we know that's the case. He's Amen. working all over the world. But to hear specific stories of what he's doing in a country uh, that we've been directly involved in, in, in at least militarily and in some other ways, to have it confirmed that God is working in uh, miraculous and strategic ways is just such an encouragement. We're going to take a break. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. When we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit about the withdrawal of troops, a bittersweet moment in American history and certainly for the Afghan people and how we can pray for and support the believers there and the church that is developing. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back after news and traffic. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing a conversation I began in the last hour, and if you have the opportunity to hear the podcast, uh, if you've missed that uh, two-segment interview, I would encourage you to listen up. My guest is Hadia Miramadi. She was a devout Muslim for two decades, working in the field of national security before she experienced the redemptive power of Jesus Christ and has a new passion for sharing the gospel. She has dedicated herself full-time to Resurrect Ministry, an online resource that uh, that harnesses the power of the Internet to make salvation through Christ available to people of all nations. And her daily podcast is livingfearlessdevotional.com. She came to Christ through a connection online through social media and wants to give that uh, opportunity to others as well. She also has a unique perspective, having uh, being an exclusive columnist for the Christian Post. She worked in the U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan in 2004 uh, and uh, has a, a significant per, um Perspective to share with us on a number of issues. Now, just before the break, I mentioned uh, the fact that the United States present is diminished and will will uh, cease to exist there in December, as far as I can understand. What are your thoughts uh, regarding the future of Afghanistan, our relationship with the country having left uh, without the mission being completed um, and its prospect moving forward? Well, of course, it's it's. It's a bittersweet moment because, of course, our soldiers miss their families. Many of them have been on multiple deployments and, quite frankly, are just exhausted. And so it's important for them to be able to come home and be reunited with their families. But we did, 
we did fail to complete the mission there, and and maybe our goals that we set out at the onset were unrealistic, but nonetheless, it, it does create this negative feeling about everything that was accomplished there. But I'm hoping that they do see the small successes that in their totality are actually large successes, which are the advances they made with the people. There are many, many stories of American soldiers reaching out to tribal leaders, teaching them basic skills, whether it was helping them in their village. There were a lot of uh, local councils that were created. We helped conflict resolution mo- uh, models develop in these areas that they had never seen before and that they were fighting and killing each other over water rights and land rights. And we developed these systems of city councils where they were then able to resolve their disputes amicably. So I think in totality, we should look back on the experience and appreciate uh, the small successes that we were able to make and advance the Afghan people. We, we, we did do the best we can. And you also mentioned in your column the effort to empower Afghan women with access to education, employment, and the media was thriving. I mentioned a yes. quote from General Boykin earlier that's also in your um, Christian Post uh, column. It may be these women that pose the most lethal threat to the Taliban's desire to return Afghanistan to draconian policies of Islamic law. So that's an encouragement as well. I know for many of us, we're concerned about the status of the uh, the growing and burgeoning um, uh, underground house church movement there, led in some uh, places by former Muslim leaders, members of the Taliban. Uh, what are your thoughts regarding um, the church and how we can encourage, support, pray for uh, that branch of the family? Well, it's so important, the the power of prayer. We could never underestimate the power of prayer. Mm -hmm. So keeping them in our prayers, of course, is is very, very important. But also supporting NGOs that are translating Bibles into Dari, into the native language, making them electronically available. And I believe there are still international organizations, the ones that also have headquarters in the United States, that are still doing um, diversity training and, and other kind of training for um, Afghan women so that they can attend conferences overseas. And again, it's those relationships that they can hold on to when they go back to their country to try to advance the cause of women and girls. And so I think it's important to support the organizations that are still doing this work, and, and I pray it will continue. And also really important is to reach out to the Afghan expat community here in the United States. A lot of them have converted and accepted Christ and have extensive relationships still back home. So to whatever extent we could support them in getting resources into their country, having, you know, Bible study via Zoom, whatever it may be, whatever is possible to make sure we make ourselves available to those families and, and those people that are trying to spread the gospel back home. Oh, that's such good uh, counsel so that we can be aware of who our neighbors are and how we might support them. Yes. You mentioned that you had become disillusioned with Islam. You started watching a charismatic pastor on YouTube. Um, what are some of the primary reasons Afghan Christians have become, or I should say Afghan Muslims have become disillusioned? Is it the the military conflict there, or are there some common threads that ultimately um, contribute to conversion to Christianity? Well, I I think it's a number of factors. Doctrinally, within Islam, some of the the belief structure is is difficult. In other words, 
your relationship with God is a one-way communication. You send prayers up and you send requests up, but he doesn't talk back to you. So you have this sense that you never promised salvation. Muhammad never promised salvation. And so you have this, this uneasy feeling your entire life that no matter how much you worship or however obedient you are, that it's never enough. And that leaves a believer eventually feeling very worn out by the faith. And I think the redemptive power and the promise of salvation and the love of Christ is something that's very appealing, even to the most hardened Muslim, because eventually, you know, for lack of a cliche, love wins. It's that feeling of being able to be loved unconditionally by the Lord. uh, That is something that a Muslim's not used to. It's just, I mean, the word love, hub in Arabic doesn't even exist in the Quran. Hmm. Again, that might be surprised to uh, many of our listeners. I think we're oftentimes very timid in approaching our Muslim or perhaps former Muslim neighbor um, because we're concerned that we might offend or we won't quite know what to say or do. What advice do you give to those who want to love their neighbor well uh, and to acknowledge that um, our Afghan friends are, in fact, our neighbors and are worthy of hospitality and friendship and uh, and seek opportunities to share the gospel and encourage and, and so on. What advice would you give? Oh, this is the uh, one of the most important topics to me is that one of the things I regret is that Christians that I worked with or that I had a personal relationship with along my life never witnessed to me. And mm. I think that that was such, um, such a loss for me that we don't, um, that we're too afraid to talk about our faith. And it's not, it's not like we have to force somebody else. There's no compulsion. We're not forcing somebody else to believe, but just sharing the power of the belief in Christ and the love and the healing and the breaking of strongholds that exists from our faith. Just recounting that story is enough to plant the seed. And I just wish more uh, Christians would do that. Mm. And, and there's, and it's absolutely done in love, and it's just it's just a method of sharing, because Muslims are not shy about sharing their faith with Christians, because they are—it's a proselytizing religion, so they have no problem doing that, and I think that it's incumbent upon us, um, as knowing the truth of the gospel, um, to share our faith with them. How important is hospitality in engaging our neighbors from Afghanistan, or for that matter, Middle Eastern countries with Muslim backgrounds? Well, Middle Easterners are very big on hospitality, <laughs> so uh, hosting people in their home is very important to them, and maybe even inviting them for a, uh, a cup of tea. Sometimes they're a little worried about food because they may have dietary restrictions, mm-hmm. but, you know, tea and cookies are just welcoming them to a neighborhood and not being um, afraid to interact with them. It's just, it's so important because especially for Muslims right now, they're so... Um, many of them are very timid that people have negative impressions of them, that just the, the approach through kindness and mutual respect would open a lot of doors, more than you can imagine. Yeah. Well, Hedia, thank you so much for talking with us today. You can find um, Hedia's uh, Christian Post uh, articles online, and I would encourage you to do that. Again, a former Muslim who served in the U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan, who came to faith in Christ and Uh, has a unique insight. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Bye-bye. 
You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break here in just a moment, and we'll continue to wind our way through some of the news stories of the day. I also wanted to mention Hedia is um, connected with Resurrect Ministry, if you'd like to follow up. She also has a daily podcast, livingfearlessdevotional.com. You can check her out there um, as well. All right, we're going to take a break momentarily. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, let me ask you a question. How would you like to get away for a few days with your family to Colorado Springs? Have an opportunity to meet friends at Focus on the Family during your trip. Well, we're giving away a Focus on the Family VIP experience that includes a round-trip airfare for you and up to three family members to Colorado Springs, three nights at Great Wolf Lodge, VIP tour of Focus on the Family headquarters, lunch with Jim Daly, an opportunity to sit in on a Focus on the Family program, and a $300 Visa gift card. Wow. Well, you can log on to the KPDQ Family Club to enter today at kpdq.com. So let me encourage you to do just that. Well, the Oregon Office of Emergency Management held a press conference today um, to discuss excessive heat and the forecast this weekend and what Oregonians can do to stay safe. Well, an excessive heat watch has been issued for Thursday through Saturday of this week for part of southern Washington and Oregon. Now, some areas near Portland and Salem could reach near 100 degrees on Friday and areas east of the Cascades could climb as high as 105 degrees. Well, the press conference comes about a month after the historic June heat wave that was responsible for at least 115 confirmed and suspected deaths across the state of Oregon. Portland um, set new heat records on three consecutive days, peaking at 116 degrees on the 28th of June. Well, during the press conference, the... uh, Uh, They're going to present findings and recommendations for expedited review of the June heat wave. Immediately following the June heat wave, um, 211 Info, the private nonprofit responsible for providing information about cooling centers and other social services, received criticism because its phone line was not properly working and no staff members worked during the weekend. Well, in the aftermath, the nonprofit announced 211 services would be available 24-7 statewide and in four counties across southwest Washington. I said across with a T at the end. It's just across, no T. Well, on Wednesday, Oregon Occupational Safety and uh, Health, or OSHA, released a press release reminding employers about recently adopted emergency rules to protect workers from extreme heat. The rules require workplaces to provide shade, cool drinking water, and regular breaks for employees when the heat index reaches 80 degrees or more. And it certainly will reach and exceed that over the next several days. Employers must also look out for signs and symptoms of heat illness and have an emergency medical plan in place when the heat index rises above 90 degrees. Well, representatives from the Oregon Health Authority and the Oregon Department of Human Services uh, joined OEM for the press conference um, live streamed on a number of websites in the media um, uh player boxes and various sites so you can check that out and we'll have more details a bit later as well but just a reminder that we have some hot days coming up here in the uh, uh, in the area 
Well, in uh, national news, a New York Times reporter deleted tweets urging uh, Trump supporters to be called enemies of the state with the backlash. Representative Jordan has accused Speaker Pelosi of kicking him off the June 6th Capitol Commission for raising fundamental questions. And GOP Representative Jim Banks says the dim-led committee, the January 6th Capitol Hill hearings, was performance art. Sean Hannity says that the June 6th commission's only goal is to smear Donald Trump and the GOP on national television. And uh, Senator Kennedy, Republican, says if partisanship were an Olympic sport, Pelosi would take home the goal. We'll see what the outcome actually is. CNN's John Avlon praised Representatives Cheney and Kinzinger for stepping on, stepping up rather on the January 6th committee, saying this is about patriotism. Let's hope that's the case and not partisanship. Well, the mayor of Seattle is calling for more police after six shootings in one weekend, a different uh, tune from just months ago. The mayor is calling on the city to rebuild its depleted police force after six separate shootings rocked Washington state's largest metro area over the weekend. As a city, we cannot continue on this current trajectory of losing police officers, the mayor said. That's Jenny Durkin during a Monday news conference. Over the past 17 months, the Seattle Police Department has lost 250 police officers. That has since been updated 300 officers, which is the equivalent of over 300,000 service hours. We're on the path of losing 300 more. Well, Durkin added the weekend violence was a reminder that there are certain emergency situations that require sworn police officers. It is false choice between community-led solutions and police officers. We need both. Well, in other developments, Kira Davis says activists who are claiming police don't prevent crime is like saying there's no proof water is wet. A Colorado police officer has been charged after alleging uh, allegedly pistol whipping and choking a man during an arrest. Clearly, there are problems with some police officers. An Alabama police officer was fatally shot in an ambush outside a home during his lunch break. There are trouble on both sides. Well, Soros handed $1 million to a group attempting to defund police as violent crime skyrockets nationwide. Well, Simone Biles says... Withdrawn from the individual all-around competition, the superstar gymnast from the U.S. will not participate in the individual all-around competition at the Tokyo Games and will instead focus on her mental well-being, USA Gymnastics said in a statement earlier today. The decision comes a day after she pulled out of the team all-around competition. Jade Carey, who finished ninth in qualifying, will take her place in the individual all-around competition. After further medical evaluation, Simone Biles has um, withdrawn from the final individual all-around competition at the Tokyo Olympic Games, the USA Gymnastics said in a statement posted on Twitter, we wholeheartedly support her decision and applaud her bravery in prioritizing her well-being. Her courage shows yet again why she is a role model for so many. I think it's important to point out because there's some controversy about her withdrawal. If she doesn't have the right mental health or state of mind, she could seriously injure herself. So keep that in mind if you are a critic. The statement said Biles will be evaluated daily to see if she can participate in next week's individual event final. So there is some hope of seeing her perform possibly next week. In other developments, Ledecky wins gold at Tokyo Games in the women's 1500 meter freestyle and an Iranian defector protested anti-Semitism by this, uh, dedicating his Olympic medal to Israel, thanking the country in Hebrew. Not sure he's going to be welcomed home with open arms. 
Well, a California movie theater shooting during Forever Purge left one dead and one wounded, according to police. And Governor Abbott has ordered the Texas National Guard to assist with uh, arrests at the U.S.-Mexico border. Eric Swalwell's affair with the uh, Chinese spy has compromised U.S. intel. An investigation is underway. Starbucks shares fell on a reduced China outlook. And IBM says the cost of data breaches hit a 17-year Hi. Google revenue surged as the online advertising market is thriving and Activision Blizzard CEO sent a letter to employees admitting to being tone deaf in his response to a lawsuit. A Wyoming uh, Wyoming town is hopeful that Bill Gates Terra Power nuclear plant will help replace some 200 plus coal related jobs there. Well, the CDC has changed course. Kids are not being told to wear masks in in school. They're telling everyone, vaccinated or not, to wear masks. Many Republican governors are telling the CDC and the Biden administration that they're nuts. That's a quote, not my thinking. Ariel Davidson, wear a mask for 15 days, for a month, for the summer, for the year, now, for the next year. Time to say enough. The risk to kids 14 and under is virtually non-existent. She wrote on Twitter, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey says Arizona does not allow mask mandates, vaccine mandates, vaccine passports or discrimination in schools based on who is or isn't vaccinated. We've passed all this into law and it will not change. Mark Hemingway points out that makes three GOP governors on record that I've seen basically telling the CDC, well, no. Nikki Haley says, stop the madness. Don't ask people to get vaccines and then punish them for taking their rights away or by taking their rights away. Punishing kids and well-meaning adults is abusive at best. Mark Thiessen of the uh, CDC's Change of Heart says the data is clear. According to the CDC, as of the 19th of July, a grand total of 4,072 vaccinated Americans had been hospitalized with symptomatic breakthrough infections out of more than 161 million who have been fully vaccinated. That is a breakthrough hospitalization rate of less than 0.003%. Better still, of those hospitalized, only 848 have died of COVID-19. That means the death rate for those uh, from those breakthrough infections is 0.0005%. To put that in perspective, your chance of dying from a lightning strike is 0.0007%, and your chance of dying from a seasonal flu is 0.1%. If you're vaccinated, you have a much greater chance of dying from a hornet wasp or bee sting, a dog attack, a car crash, drowning, sunstroke or choking on food than you do of dying from COVID-19. You can read more of Mark Thiessen on that in The Washington Post. Well, the Biden administration has ordered federal immigration judges to stop using the term illegal or alien. Instead, they're told to use terms non-citizen, migrant, undocumented non-citizen or undocumented individual. Doesn't change any circumstance, but the language, once again, is changing. California Governor Newsom pulled his son from a camp after seeing a maskless photo surface. Of course, they didn't require masks at the camp, so he's a little late to uh, catching on. After word of the photo of Newsom's son spread, the governor's communications director said in a statement, the Newsoms were concerned to see unvaccinated children unmasked indoors at a camp their children began attending yesterday. Their kids will no longer be attending the camp. Now, this wasn't news to the Newsoms, but I guess it was Bad optics. Not the first time Newsom has been pegged with hypocrisy over masks. Meanwhile, polls show the likelihood of all recall is uh, of uh, the recall, rather, his 
uh, is growing. According to Ed Morrissey, the presence of Larry Elders on the ballot will push more people to the polls. Don't forget that once Newsom loses the recall, the replacement contest is a first um, uh, past the po- the uh, post affair didn't say that very well whoever gets more votes becomes governor no matter what percentage of the vote it comprises in a field of dozens larry can win the vo- the uh, office with a low percentage of the split and larry's presence larry elder on the ticket will almost certainly boost turnout among republican and independents in a way that uh, jenner won't uh, which adds uh, to the chances that the recall succeeds and that Larry Elders takes office afterward. Jason Riley says Mr. Elder is an attorney, best-selling author, documentary filmmaker, and successful talk radio host who was born and raised in Los Angeles. True, he's an amateur when it comes to electoral politics, but look at what the uh, professionals like Mr. Newsom, a liberal Democrat, have done to the most populous state. Of course, that crosses both political lines. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Biden administration released 50,000 uh, illegal aliens, rather non-citizen migrant, undocumented non-citizens or undocumented individuals into the United States. About 50,000 uh, who crossed the southern border have now been released into the United States without a court date. And although they're told to report to an immigration and customs enforcement office instead, just 13 percent have uh, shown up so far. Guy Benson points out that travel restrictions for legal entrance, including from heavily vaccinated allied countries, remain in effect. Well, the House Select Committee heard uh, from witnesses on the January 6th Capitol riot, and that uh, process will continue. Meanwhile, the Biden administration reinstated rapid deportations for migrant families not expelled under the current Trump era public health order, Title 42. The Department of Homeland Security announced uh, on Monday, well, border uh, border officials rather would be able to deport migrant families who illegally enter the U.S. and aren't expelled under Title 42 under the expedited removal proceedings without court hearings, according to the department. Well, this is all smoke and mirrors, and I believe the administration is talking about expedited removal because they are are prepping the battlefield to get rid of Title 42 and say, look, there's no difference here. We're still going to have expedited removal, even without Title 42. Uh, Mark Morgan, former Customs and Border Protection Acting Commissioner, Uh, And Heritage Foundation visiting fellow told the Daily Caller, Um, he says it's uh, unreliable. I'm using different language because expedited removal has been around since 1996. So they're going to tout it like it's something new that they've uh, that they've done. He added it's been used uh, under both Republican and Democratic administrations, and it would be used right now under the Biden administration if that if not for Title 42. Well, the controversy has erupted as Simone Biles uh, exited the Olympics. She said she was having mental health issues, and she's certainly entitled to that. Our expectations may be uh, a bit uh, off skew. Some initially were displeased with the decision. Matt Walsh wrote, the best gymnast on the squad, one of the most celebrated U.S. Olympic athletes of all time, chose to abandon her team in the middle of the finals. Her teammates would finish second behind Russia while Biles went on to receive even more acclaim than a good, than a gold medal would have earned her. Again, from a critic. Uh, Dan McLaughlin says, I thought it was uh, pretty lame for Simone Biles to bail on her teammates over just mental stress, over just mental stress. (laughs) 
She's perhaps the um, the one athlete that everyone was looking to see. And she said days earlier that she felt the weight of the world on her shoulders. Well, Eric Erickson says, having read a lot more, my initial reaction to the Simone Biles uh, stuff was wrong. Seems pretty clear that by walking away, she actually improved her team's chances and avoided a potentially serious injury. Think about the things that she alone does as a gymnast. She's uh, have actually let the team down by staying. Uh, gymnast Hannah Reno, she says uh, she once, by the way, had a terrible fall. Uh, Simone looked lost in the air. The same thing had happened in her last warm-up vault before competing, which she had uh, crashed into the ground. Instead of one flip and 2.5 twists to the left, you can see that by the end of the first twist, her head is at neutral. And in the last half of the twist, she did 1.5 total. Her head is total to the right. Your head should never be to the right if you have twisted left. She was completely disoriented. Miraculously, she landed on her feet in a deep squat and touched neither her hands but her butt to the ground. She saluted, walked off, and looked stunned. So, um, again, to the critics, there was, there were and are legitimate reasons she stepped away. Well, a Rite Aid employee was shot and killed by men stealing beer. The employee confronted the thieves who are um, used to getting away with shoplifting since it's practically legal in California. President Biden plans to make vaccinations mandatory for most federal employees. The announcement is expected to come on Thursday. And Chicago Mayor Lightfoot is defending her personal racism of only granting interviews to black reporters, excuse me, black and brown reporters. Mayor Lightfoot proudly proclaimed, I would absolutely do it again. I'm unapologetic about it because it spurned a new, um, a very important conversation, a conversation that needed to happen that should have happened a long time ago. A conversation about reverse racism. Is that what she's referring to? Well, this day on hist- in history, 1914, World War One begins as Austria-Hungary declares war on Serbia. 1915, more than 300 American soldiers and Marines arrive in Haiti to restore order following the killing of Haitian President Vilbrun uh, Guillaume uh, Sam uh, by rebels beginning a 19-year U.S. occupation. 1915. 1945, on this day in history, a U.S. Army bomber crashes into the 79th floor of New York's Empire State Building, killing 14 people. 1965, President Lyndon Baines Johnson announces he's increased the number of American troops in South Vietnam from 75,000 to 125,000 almost immediately. 1976, an earthquake devastates northern China, killing at least 242,000 people according to an official estimate. 1984, the Los Angeles Summer Olympic Games open. 2009, the Senate Judiciary Committee approves Judge Sonia Sotomayor to be the U.S. Supreme Court's first Hispanic justice over nearly solid Republican opposition. 2017, British baby Charlie Gard dies a week shy of his first birthday. His parents had fought for the right to take him to the United States for an experimental treatment for a rare genetic disease that left him brain damaged. Well, the Senate may vote to advance a bipartisan infrastructure package as early as tonight. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said after negotiators resolved major outstanding issues on the roughly $1.2 trillion deal. With respect to infrastructure, senators continue to make good progress on both tracks of legislation. The New York Democrats said on the Senate floor this morning, members should be prepared to vote again on cloture on the motion to proceed to the bipartisan infrastructure bill as early as tonight. 
Well, the bipartisan package includes about $579 billion in new spending on traditional infrastructure projects. But for weeks, the two sides remain fiercely divided over how much funding should go to public transit, highways, bridges, water and broadband, and whether to use unspent COVID-19 relief money to help pay for the bill. And although senators hope to finish negotiations by Monday, the talks appear to be in danger of collapsing when the 22-member group concluded weekend talks with major roadblocks still remaining. But Senator Rob Portman, the lead GOP negotiator, announced on Wednesday following a meeting with the Senate Majority Leader, or rather Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, that lawmakers have an agreement on the major issues. And while the legislative text is still being finalized, Portman said it will uh, be prepared for a procedural vote tonight. Well, there is one holdout. Um, in fact, one Democrat says, no, not so quick. Senator um, uh, Kirsten Sinema said she doesn't support the $3.5 trillion partisan spending plan proposed by Democrats in remarks to the Arizona Republic on Wednesday. Democrats are attending to uh, attempting rather to pass a $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure plan along with the $3.5 trillion proposal. Sanima said that while she supports the goals of the $3.5 trillion proposal, such a job growth for Americans, she does not back the price tag. I've also made clear that while I will support beginning this process, I do not support a bill that costs $3.5 trillion, and you add the $1.2 trillion in the bipartisan infrastructure plan. Sanima told the Republic in a statement, Sanima did not suggest a cost she would be willing to support. In the coming months, I will work in good faith to develop this legislation with my colleagues and the administration to strengthen Arizona's economy and help Arizona's everyday families get ahead. Now, keep in mind, uh, the House and some uh, Democrats have said they're unwilling to consider and pass the infrastructure bill without uh, the $3.5 trillion uh, bill that goes along with it. Now, a presidential commission on the Supreme Court met on Tuesday for its second public meeting hearing from um, 27 witnesses about everything from the court's so-called shadow docket to court packing and time limits for the confirmation process. Well, the commission's report for President Joe Biden is due mid-November. But if this and its May 19th meeting are any indication, this exercise may be to quote Shakespeare, a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. A legal memorandum published in June by the Heritage Foundation documented how commissions on court reform and other subjects are created to examine the identified problem or issue and offer recommendations to solve or address it. This commission is different. When Biden created the commission in April, he didn't identify a problem that needed reform and didn't instruct the commission to make any recommendations. Instead, he created the commission to appease left-wing activists, demanding that the Supreme Court actually be expanded and then packed with justices likely to rule the way they want on key issues. While the president opposed that idea, at least publicly, when he was a senator and during most of the presidential campaign, days before the 2020 election, he said in a 60 Minutes interview, view that he would appoint a commission that would um, not be about court packing, but a number of other things. Well, a number of other things are not really being discussed. As expected, however, court packing was one of the most prominent issues during the commission's uh, July 20th meeting. John Malcolm, director of the Mies Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, testified on a panel with two aggressive court packing advocates Uh, Craig Kang, chief counsel of the progressive group Demand Justice, argued that the Supreme Court should be expanded to balance the current 6-3 majority of Republican appointees. 
Malcolm responded that the court has had even larger majorities appointed by one party without the other calling for court packing. Another witness on that panel, Alliance for Justice President Nan Aaron, observed that a majority of current Supreme Court justices were appointed by Republican President George W. Bush and Donald Trump, who were elected with less than a majority of the popular vote. She implied that this makes those justices and even the court itself less legitimate. Now, the Supreme Court is not supposed to be a political body. The uh, members, the executive that appoints them, that's ultimately approved by the Senate, is not supposed to matter. So the back and forth continues, and whether or not the judiciary survives intact remains to be seen. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you may have heard earlier in the program, the Oregon health official said to, uh, on Tuesday that everyone should wear a mask when in public indoor space. Well, that's with a COVID-19 surge that sent hospitalizations up 25 percent in Oregon in one day and new cases in excess of 1,000. Well, the Oregon Health Authority recommendations are statewide. They apply to vaccinated and unvaccinated Oregonians alike. The announcement followed a recommendation by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention for masks in areas with high case counts, which uh, would include 25 of Oregon's 36 counties. Now, the governor lifted a statewide mask mandate on the 30th of June. It seems so long ago now. As cases were um, in steep decline, well, the state has since said repeatedly it's not implementing mandates for masks or any other COVID-19 restrictions, leaving decisions up to counties, even as the uh, contagious uh, Delta variant is spreading. Well, Multnomah County has recommended masks indoors. Um, uh, they did so on Monday. Today's uh, reported sharp rise in cases and hospitalizations in Oregon are sobering reminders that the pandemic is not over, especially for Oregonians who remain unvaccinated. Now, that's a quote from Dr. Dean Seidlinger. He's the state epidemiologist and state health officer. Well, Brown echoed, and that's Governor Brown, echoed those uh, comments in a tweet on Tuesday saying the Delta variant is spreading across the country. Uh, Take it from an expert like Dr. Seidlinger, vaccinated or unvaccinated. Let's mask up to protect our friends, family members and neighbors from COVID-19. We can stop the spread uh, the same way we have before together. Now, there's some controversy even among experts as to whether or not the CDC has reversed itself. They suggest that we haven't changed. Rather, the virus has changed and therefore this is the right advice for this moment. So there's a lot of politicization and back and forth on this whole thing. But this is what's being said here in the state of Oregon. Now, the Delta variant has become dominant in the state, uh, health officials are saying. Uh, as the daily uh, cases doubled in the past week, Oregon health officials reported that the Delta variant has become the dominant variant in the state. Um, the Oregon Health Authority tracked nearly 3,000 cases involving variants uh, of concern. The OHA says sequence uh, cases of the Delta variant have increased from 30 to 50 percent in the most recent week, which is a, a tenfold increase over the past two weeks. Now, among those who are vaccinated and unvaccinated, we don't have that breakdown. Well, during a press conference on Thursday, state health officer Dr. Dean Seidlinger warned the spread of the Delta variant poses a risk for unvaccinated people. Now, that has led many vaccinated people to question why they should return to masks. We're being told that uh, vaccinated people might be carriers and uh, those who are unvaccinated vulnerable. 
Now, again, that contradicts some of the uh, advice we were given earlier, but this is what we're being told now. Well, the emergence of this uh, highly contagious variant should be a red alert to those who remain unvaccinated, Seidlinger said. Uh, you are at high risk now that you were um, than you were earlier in the pandemic and you are putting the people around you at risk. Well, last month, more than nine out of 10 people who tested positive for COVID-19 or were hospitalized or died from the virus were unvaccinated. Um, nine out of 10, which means at least one of those 10 was vaccinated in Oregon. More than 70 percent of adults have been fully or partially vaccinated. But in uh, one third of Oregon counties, many rural, less than 50 percent of the adult population is vaccinated, according to the Oregon Health Authority. Umatilla County, for example, 43 percent partially or fully vaccinated. Uh, the county's coronavirus test positivity rate is over 14.2 percent. And that's in contrast to Washington County, where 75.1 percent of residents are vaccinated and the coronavirus test positivity rate is 4.1 percent. Well, in addition to that, in the state of Washington, and I'm trying to find this in my notes, so I quote uh, Washington correctly. Governor Jay Inslee announced uh, today that the state is recommending that residents there Wear masks inside public spaces regardless of vaccination status in counties where COVID-19 transmission levels are considered high or substantial. Excuse me. Well, this is in accordance with a guidance, again, from the Centers for Disease Control, recommending that even fully vaccinated people should go back to wearing masks indoors to help prevent the spread of the highly contagious Delta variant. Now, some are suggesting that advice undermines the incentive that those who are yet to be vaccinated might have, believing that they can jettison the mask if they're vaccinated. We'll only see as time will tell, the impact this may or may not have. Well, this is new guidance for the state of Washington. It is a recommendation and will not be enforced or part of any compliance requirement, according to the governor. Uh, governor Inslee was joined by Washington's Secretary of Health, Dr. Umer Shah. This comes weeks after Washington state fully reopened, dropping most pandemic restrictions. Well, the latest guidance on masks in indoor spaces places um, uh, uh uh, applies in part uh, to the uh, country with high and substantial case rates. Now, are you in an area with high or substantial case rates? Well, you have to determine that to see whether or not this applies to you. It equals between 50 to 100 new cases per 100,000 people in the last week. Well, that includes 60 percent of U.S. counties, officials say, including some in western Washington. You can view the CDC map of the um, the country uh, online. Well, Governor Inslee addressed the epidemiological curve for the state, suggesting that Washington is seeing a fifth wave of the pandemic due to the Delta variant. We know the dominant variant today is the Delta variant. It is twice as infectious. It is more likely to cause serious illness, and it is easily the most dangerous mutation to date of this virus. And we know it is trending upward. Again, Governor Inslee said in his press conference. He expressed his disappointment at feeling the need to issue this recommendation, but said that his office sees only one way out of this pandemic, which is more vaccinations. And while King County squeaks in just over that mark at 53 cases on average, or the low end of substantial, Snohomish County rates high at 120 cases and Spokane County uh, much higher at almost 260 cases. Well, earlier this week, eight Washington counties 
uh, including King, Pierce and Snohomish, signed a joint statement recommending that people return to wearing masks indoors, even if they are fully vaccinated. So that is the status here in the Pacific Northwest with regard to uh, the vaccinations. Uh, Senator Graham points out that the COVID restrictions apply to Americans, but not those in the country illegally. Uh, with a highly contagious Delta variant sweeping the country and the CDC, once again urging even vaccinated Americans to resume wearing face masks. We should know how much of the recent COVID surge stems from the ongoing border surge, where that is not a consideration. Uh, Graham is uh, demanding answers from Homeland Security's Alejandro Mayorkas. I write today to discuss my ongoing concerns about the humanitarian and public health crisis at the southern border. Graham wrote to Mayorkas on the 26th. Well, during one of the greatest public health emergencies in recent history and at a time when illegal crossings are nearly 1.2 million migrants this fiscal year alone, it's important to understand whether migrants are receiving appropriate COVID-19 testing and screening upon apprehension. So far, that is an unanswered question, but uh, the question being asked, um, we'll see whether or not there is an answer forthcoming. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We are out of time, but I do want to take a moment to thank James Blinn for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.